0: Father, thank you for the wisdom that you gave to Solomon and to the other writers whose words fill these pages. And we are at a great distance from them in many ways. And yet, Lord, the the wisdom that they've written here still has so much to say to us. So would you help us to listen to that, Lord? Would you help us to have eyes and hearts open to what you've said, what you have to say through this word to us. And Father, I pray that we would see more than just some ideas and some principles here, but Lord, I pray you'd help us to see you in your glory. You are the God who works, who has worked, who is working right now. So work in us, Lord, as we receive this word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as many of you know, we're working our way through the book of Proverbs, and we're working our way one topic at a time. Now, typically, that's not uh, how we want to do things. We want to work through a book the way that it's written, but with the way that Proverbs is set up, it's almost impossible to do that. So what we've done is we've arranged the Proverbs together that address a particular topic. And then uh, we've been taking up one of those topics where all those Proverbs are gathered together each Sunday. I posted something on the website this week you might want to check out that just lets you know what you can expect in the next few weeks uh, up until the series wraps up on September 18th. Uh, but today we're talking about work, and as we listen to what Proverbs has to tell us, it's, it's helpful uh, to consider how the wisdom of God contrasts with the wisdom of the world that we're so often exposed to these days, and uh, I've found help for that in, in the excellent book, The Gospel at Work. It's in our library. I think it's actually featured in the bulletin this week. Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert talk about two very common approaches that people in our world today uh, tend to take to work. Uh, The first is idleness. Idleness is not working or working as little as possible. Uh, Like the guy that I used to work construction with, I'd say, hey, what's up? And he'd say, as little as possible. And he meant it. And he wondered why he didn't get raises. (laughs) Idleness can be seen in different ways. It can be seen in the person who refuses to work, tries to live off of the generosity of others, Idleness might show up in someone who has a job or a career, but they make it their aim to get away with putting in as little work as possible. They might even choose a career that will yield the highest benefit to them with the least amount of effort. Uh, Idleness shows up in the kind of person who stands around the punch clock chatting for 15 minutes so they can get paid for work that they didn't actually do. Idleness might show up in the busy professional working long hours to pack away as much money as possible so they can retire as early as possible and spend as many decades of their life doing as little as they can. Idleness certainly shows up in the common belief today that work is a necessary evil, something that we need to do just so that we can afford to do what we want to do, something we have to do so that we can get back to the really important business of chilling out. Living for the weekend. So that's a, a little bit of a description of, of some ways that we see idleness at work in our world today. It's kind of a funny phrase, idleness at work, but you get what I mean. On the other end of the spectrum, we have idleness, on the other end of the spectrum is, is, is the idolatry of work. This is where people find their identity in their work or what they gain from their work, whether it's the money or the prestige or just the feeling of being needed. Work becomes everything to them and they'll sacrifice everything for it. Uh, we might be familiar with the word workaholic or workaholism, someone who seems addicted, addicted to work. They don't know when to stop, they don't know when to rest, they don't know how to be, all they know how to do is, is do stuff. And there's a lot more that we could say about that. There's a lot more we could say about idleness. There's a lot more we could say about our modern world and the attitudes towards work in it. But what we're after this morning is what God has to say to us, and specifically in the book of Proverbs. What does this book have to say about work? How does wisdom work And so we're going to consider that question this morning in a few ways. Uh, There's an outline there that, that you got on your handout. So we're going to start by considering three truths that the book of Proverbs teaches us, three broad general truths about work. Then we're going to touch on two key lessons from the book of Proverbs, two lessons about this. And then we're going to ask two important questions. So three truths, two lessons, and two questions. And we're going to start by looking at these three truths. So let's look at the first one. Without uh, much more waiting, let's just jump in. The first truth that the book of Proverbs teaches us is that work is wise and honorable. Uh, we saw this truth uh, back two years ago when we looked at Proverbs chapter 1 to 8. Think of how wisdom itself was pictured as a master workman, Proverbs 8.30. Wisdom, from the beginning of time, or even before the beginning of time, works, works. Being a workman is an honorable and a wise thing. If wisdom had that job, wisdom and work have always been connected. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in the rest of the book of Proverbs, work is something that is honored, that is honored. Twenty two, twenty nine. do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So we might just think, oh, that's just an observation. But think of what it's saying. Someone who's skillful in their work, that is an honorable thing. That should be honored by the highest authority in the land. Not just, yeah, whatever, he's skillful at his work. That's great, I guess. No, that's that's an honorable thing. A verse like that honors work. Work is not a lowly thing. And so Proverbs here contrasts to some of the other worldviews in the ancient world where they saw work as sort of this dirty, menial thing. Hire slaves to do that. But really, if you're important, you shouldn't have to work. And Proverbs doesn't hold to that set of thoughts. In the book of Proverbs, work is honorable and wise. The following two Proverbs again show us that diligent, careful workers will be, should be rewarded with promotion. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor, 1224. If you don't work, you're going to have to be made to work. If you're diligent in working, you, you will have a position of, of importance. 17.2, uh, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. So again, these Proverbs, we take them together. They're showing us that working hard, even as a servant, is a good thing and, and, and that it's something that should be rewarded. Uh, Proverbs 30, 24 to 25 uh, is a really interesting set of verses that looks at different animals and sort of helps us see God's wisdom at work in the world uh, and, and how certain animals, they, they, they just do things because God made them to do things. And, and one is the ants who provide for their food in the summer, right? They work ahead, which is an idea we'll see later. And it says that that is exceedingly wise. So making hay while the sun shines is wise, Work is not a necessary evil. Work is good, wise, honorable, worthy of reward. So that's the first truth we see in Proverbs. Here's the second. Work is typically how God provides for us. I say typically because a few weeks ago we considered the fact that there are the poor who need generosity if they're going to survive. But something that that we really should just touch on briefly before we go ahead is, is that... When the Old Testament, when Proverbs and other books in the Old Testament talk about the poor, it is not talking about those who could work but refused. That kind of person is called a sluggard, and we're going to hear about them today. The poor in Israel were those who could not work or who had no opportunity to work because they had no land. And often, that was because it had been taken away from them through oppression. So, most of the time in the Old Testament where we read about the poor, it's talking about the righteous poor who could not provide for themselves despite their intentions. And we see in the book of Ruth and other places that the generosity that they needed was no replacement for work. The people were to leave stuff at the edge of their fields or take a break one in seven so that the poor could go work and harvest from their land. So there's exceptions, but the general pattern is that God provides for his people as they work. Proverbs 13 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Okay, so the wicked guy's hungry, the, prov- the righteous man has enough, and generally that's because the righteous person is actually working. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. And he who guards his master will be honored, Twenty seven, eighteen. So again, a servant guarding his master, he's going to be honored. And a guy working his fig tree, he's going to get to eat. A, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on, says sixteen, twenty six. So in other words, if you want to eat, you should work. That's how God set this world up. Goes back to the garden, right? God provided... Trees for food. And yet I I don't believe that the picture we get in Genesis is that there were conveyor belts that harvested that fruit and brought it by. So Adam and Eve could just sit there and it would just get shoveled into their mouth. No, they they actually had to go and do some work. We're going to come back to that thought. Two more proverbs fill this out further. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense That's 12.11. And then 12.27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. This is how God provides for his people. Now, we need to remember how God promised to give his people in the old covenant. He promised to give them flocks and herds and rich crops. So the stuff growing out there, just like in the Garden of Eden, it was a gift from God. But how did they access that? How did the wheat get into their barns? How did the meat get onto their table? God provided it, but they accessed that blessing through work. And this principle is spelled out in in some more Proverbs that we're not going to read, but they're, they're listed there on your handout. So again, general principles. Remember, there's exceptions. The Proverbs are not promises. They're general principles. Generally, though, this is how God provides for his people. So if that's true, then the third truth should not surprise us. Laziness, not working, is foolish and destructive. So we've already seen this. 1224 spoke about the slothful. 1325 said the, the wicked has an empty belly. 1227 says is slothful will not roast his game. We don't know if this means that he didn't even go hunting Or maybe he went hunting and he shot his animal, but he's too lazy to go chase it down. So the wild animals are going to get it. But either way, he's not going to have anything to eat. And that's exactly the lesson that these following Proverbs reinforce again and again. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger, 1915. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing, 20 verse 4. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor 21:25 The lazy person sleeps instead of working and he's going to be hungry and he's going to have nothing because he refused to work My wife told me it was too warm for a jacket and she was right Now maybe you're thinking here, as we think about this sluggard, how could that happen? How could someone be so lazy that they would keep on refusing to work even though their cupboards are empty and their stomach is growling? How could you refuse to work even though you've got nothing? And what Proverbs tells us is that laziness, being a sluggard, is fundamentally a heart problem. Twenty-six, thirteen to 16, which we read together, it gave us a series of Descriptions of the sluggard that help us see what's going on. So verse 13 is really important. 26, 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. So notice here, the sluggard is using their mind to invent things that are not true to justify their heart. Their heart, they don't want to work. So instead they say, ah, well, you know, there's probably a lion out there. It would it would be the safe thing to stay inside today, you know, because, you know, the risk of getting mauled will be a lot lower if I don't leave my front door. So, yeah, I'm just going to it's going to stay in. Okay? And by the way, there's a whole sermon there on how in sin we use our minds to create reasons that our hearts are craving. But that's what's going on. And then what's interesting is the, the, the next couple of verses go on just to mock this sluggard. Like, it's kind of funny what we see here. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. It's like a door. It's just what it does. It just stays in one spot and goes, that's a sluggard in his bed or his couch. If, we, if they had couches back then. And then in verse 15, I mean, this is just straight up humor. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I want some more snacks. And then his hand just stays there because lifting it up to his mouth is an expenditure of energy that he's not willing to make. Okay, You should laugh here. This is funny. This is helping us see how ridiculous uh, this level of laziness is because it's helping us see the foolishness that's at the heart of laziness. But what, So what's going on here? Okay, so we saw something about the heart, a couple of kind of funny descriptions, and then verse 16 tells us really what's going on. The sluggard is a fool. That's the problem. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. See, he's a fool. He thinks he's wiser than seven men, so you can't reason with him. You can't go to him and try to help him understand, like, you know, that noise in your stomach, you could turn that off by just working, because he thinks he's wise. He's got all these reasons. He's got it all figured out. And, uh, and he knows better than you. So, laziness is the fruit of, of a heart that is foolish. And that lazy person who refuses to work, even though they could, is going to get destroyed by their laziness. And a number of other proverbs, again, they're on your handout. They repeat this same idea. So, those are our three ideas work is wise and honorable. Work is generally how God provides for his people. And laziness is foolish and destructive. Three general truths, three general truths that Proverbs teaches us. So now we're going to look at two lessons that Proverbs gives us. If these things are true, what are the practical lessons that that Proverbs tells us or that the father of Proverbs tells to his son? And I'm sure there's many ways that we could tally these up. But I saw two main lessons in my study this week. And the first is this. Don't rest too much. Proverbs 20, 13 puts it really simply. Love not sleep. Don't love sleep. Lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. Here's the idea here. Rest should not be anyone's priority work is the priority and the father here encouraging his son he's not telling him to work as little as possible so he can rest as much as possible rather he's saying only rest as needed so that you can get back to the main thing which is work don't enjoy rest too much don't love it you'll need to do it like we're going to hear But don't love it. And 20, 30 to 34, which we read together, fleshes it out even further, right? I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. So, in other words, he's not getting anything out of that vineyard. He's not going to get any plants or grapes or anything. It's a a wreck. And it's going to take way more work now to get anything out of it. Then I saw and considered. I looked and received instruction. A lesson there, right? There's a lot of wisdom to be gained just by observing things and asking questions. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It started small, right? Uh, just, a, just a little bit more sleep. Uh, I, I probably could take a third nap today. That was a good solid five minutes of work. I deserve another break. And soon that rationalization of too much rest meant that this man's property was destroyed and poverty had robbed him of anything that he was going to have. And so what's the lesson here? Don't rest too much. Open up your eyes and get back to work. That's what the author of Solomon is saying to his son. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. This is the other side of the coin. We should, if we're not loving work too much, we should work, but particularly for the future, with an eye on the future. See, that's the problem for the sluggard, especially the one that we just read about. He sat down for his fourth nap of the day because at that moment, things seemed fine. He didn't have any particular wants at that moment. He had enough on his shelves at that moment. Things seemed good then, so ah, I can afford to rest. But he wasn't thinking about all the work that was going to need to happen so that he would still have food on his shelves in the fall and in the winter and next spring. He wasn't thinking ahead. And so what the author, that the father of Proverbs tells his son and through him, us to, to, to listen to, is that we need to think ahead when it comes to work. Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Okay, so this is the kind of advice a father would give to his son who had just come into his inheritance, just got his own bit of land, and he's thinking, yes, you know, some independence, I got my own land, I'm going to build my sweet house the way that I've always wanted it to, and then I'll find a wife and take her home to that house, and I guess then I'll have to think about what I'm actually going to eat. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Sleep in a tent if you need to. Take care of your food. Plant your fields, then build your house. So see how he's encouraging his son to think ahead. Work for the future. And we read 27, 23 to 27, same idea, saying your money might lose value, but your crops are going to take care of your needs. So take care of your crops. Don't just think, oh, I got lots of money, so I don't need to. Work for the future. Proverbs 14.4, one of my favorite Proverbs, addresses this same theme very poetically. This is a verse that me and my wife quote to each other often when the house feels messier than we would like it to be. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So here's, here's kind of the idea here. The lazy person... Goes out to his barn, his manger. Actually, they're actually part of their house. Often, he'd go downstairs and and it's just it's a mess. And he's thinking, man, these oxen are so much work. All I do is clean up after these messy cows. You know what? I'm going to get rid of these cows, and then I'll have a clean barn for once, and I won't actually have to clean up after them. Right? He's he's thinking he's got a plan figured out, but that's not thinking ahead. The diligent person realizes, oh, okay, if I get rid of these cows. I'll have a clean barn, but how am I going to harvest my grain this fall? How am I going to plant my grain and bring in the harvest? So yeah, no cows, no mess, but also no food. So work for the future. It's worth it to clean up after your cows because those cows, those oxen are going to bring abundant crops. So think ahead. And it's this kind of forward thinking that the lazy person never does. And Proverbs just encourages this kind of forward thinking again and again. Even a verse as obscure as Proverbs 24:10 says if you faint in the day of adversity your strength is small. Seems like kind of like, huh? But what it's saying is prepare for the day of adversity. Think ahead. Think ahead. And Proverbs encourages that kind of forward thinking again and again. Make sure you're prepped for the future when tough times come your way. So two lessons. Don't love work. Don't love rest. Don't love sleep. Work for the future. And in all of this, Proverbs, like we've seen, is just echoing the perspective of Genesis. God made Adam and Eve, and he put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it before sin, before the fall. Work is not bad. It's hard, but hard is not the same as bad. Work was there before sin. And in his covenant with Israel, God brought them a step closer to the Garden of Eden as he blessed their land with so much crops and herds and flocks. And he says the land will be dripping with milk, that's goat's milk, and honey, which might be from the bees, but honey might also be a reference to to the date honey that they make from the dates that would grow. And he just promised to give them all this stuff But they had to go get it and put it in their barns. They had to work. And that was not a bad thing. Work is good. So three truths, two lessons. Now we want to ask two questions, really important questions. First is, what about rest? And the second is, what about us? First question, what about rest? Isn't it important to rest? Isn't it possible to burn out by working too hard for too long? Why doesn't Proverbs say anything about that? Why doesn't Proverbs say anything about not overworking? You think of an answer? I think here's at least a part of the answer. The book of Proverbs was written to Israelites living under the Old Covenant. You remember how important it is when we interpret the Bible to understand who it was written to and where they were at in the unfolding story of redemption. And Israelites, living under the Old Covenant, had a a lot of commandments that were given to them that commanded them to rest. So they had the Sabbath commandment. One day in seven, they had to rest. And if they didn't, they were executed, Okay, so this is serious. It was, it, was, it was really serious business. You could not work yourself to death or you would actually die rather soon. So they had to rest one day in seven. Then they had the, the, the festival commandments at least three times a year. They had to go up to Jerusalem for a multiple day festival where they weren't working and they were just worshiping God enjoying being together and having big meals and, and a big celebration. And then there was the Sabbath here. Every seventh year, they were supposed to take the whole year off, where they wouldn't plant or harvest or anything, and God promised to provide enough for them in those six years, where they could take that seventh year to just live off of that, and then the poor in the land could go and, and could use their land. So to a, a, a well let, let's even just make one more note before we go on ahead here. These people lived in an era before electric lighting before screens, before cell phones. And so their lives more naturally follow the rhythms of the sun because they just couldn't do their work at night when the sun went down. So they had to come in for the evening. You can't harvest a field without electric lighting after the sun's gone down. And so for a faithful Israelite, work was just baked or sorry, rest was just baked into their life. They did not have the option of working 24-7-365. They had to rest regularly, one day in seven, a few breaks throughout the year, and one big long break every seven years. So hear that. That's why the author of Proverbs doesn't have to tell them to rest, because the Lord told them that already. That being said, though, we can't miss that the overall message from Proverbs this morning is that work is good, and that's what you should really lean into. So it's not this picture of just get your work over with so that, yeah, now you can rest, because that's what life is all about. Rather, like we've seen, it's reinforcing this idea that rest is something we need so that we can keep working. And so now we're going to come to our final question What about us? What about you and I today? What does all this have to say to us? As we've drawn attention to, we live at a different place in earth, a different time in history. Most importantly, though, we live under a different covenant than the recipients of Proverbs. The old covenant's finished. We live under the new covenant in Christ. And so here's what we need to acknowledge, importantly, first first. First of all here is that in the new covenant, the promised blessings that God gives us are not accessed by our work. They were worked for by Jesus and they're given to us by grace. And we receive them by resting in what Jesus has done for us, which is another way of describing faith. So we have we have to start there. Romans 4, 4 to 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due so these, ver- these references are in your handout. The actual verses aren't there because I ran out of space. Now, so the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's, that's the heart of the gospel there. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus worked for it. And we rest in Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done. He lived the perfect life, we didn't. He died the horrible death that we deserved. And so the blessings of the new covenant, forgiveness and adoption and justification and the Holy Spirit and eternal life, and we could go on and on, they come to us, not as we work, but as we rest in Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel is rest for our souls. as we, Not that it doesn't need work, but that Jesus did the work for us. The gospel frees us from working to earn God's favor, working to receive eternal life, working to prove that we're good enough. Jesus was already good enough for you. And in the gospel, we can rest and enjoy peace with God we got to start there. And what I'm not going to say now is, but I'm going to say, and, and what we find is that the gospel is also a summons to work. As we, rather, as, the, as we respond to the gospel. Not because we're working for our salvation, not because we're trying to prove ourselves to God, but rather because we've been saved, because we've been accepted, because we've been adopted, now we work. That's what the New Testament tells us. We find rest for our souls and from that place of rest in our souls, we get to work. Not to earn it, but because it's already been given to us. So this applies at several levels. It applies at the level of, of working for our, just our daily needs, just like we see in Proverbs and Second Thessalonians is the key text there, three ten to twelve. For even when we were with you, we would give this command: if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's New Testament. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. And earn their own living. Literally, eat their own bread. Stop eating other people's bread. He's saying, eat your own bread. Get a job. So the idea here is that some Christians they thought Jesus was going to return really quickly, and they they maybe they heard about what happened at Jerusalem when everyone was just sharing their resources, and they're thinking woohoo, and so they're just living off of the generosity of others. And and the Apostle Paul says that's not how it works. First um, Thessalonians 4.12 says that we should aim to not be dependent on others. And uh, there are cases where there's people like missionaries who give their, or, or uh, guys like me who work full-time at a church, who give our full career to the work of the gospel and are supported by others. But even that is never an excuse to not work. Rather, those missionaries, pastors are working, should be working really hard. So Jesus told us, think about this, Jesus told us not to worry about what we would eat. He didn't tell us to stop working for what we would eat. Normally, this is still how God provides for his children, most of the time, normally. So many of these Proverbs that we've seen, even though we're in the New Covenant, they, they can just apply directly in, 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 in large manner. But, but here's, here's really where the main thrust of the New Testament The main way that we can apply these lessons from Proverbs is for the work that we do as we serve the Lord and we serve his purposes in the world today as we get involved in the mission of God. Romans chapter 12, okay? We've had, if you read the book of Romans, 11 chapters of just gospel grace unpacked, unfolded, and then chapter 12, verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, in the context here is about our life together as a church. Okay, how we love and take care of each other. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, okay? Slothful, that's a Proverbs word. In, in the original language, it comes from the same spot as, as all those words for sluggard in the book of Proverbs. Do not be a sluggard in your zeal to serve the Lord and to love his people. Maybe you might work really hard at your job, but is there a chance? That there is spiritual sluggardness, spiritual slothfulness in your heart. Do you bury your hand in the dish when it comes to loving your brothers and sisters? When it comes to serving the Lord, that's that's those are the kind of questions this passage makes us ask. Do not be a spiritual lazybones. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's a command from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just like, oh yeah, I, there's some Christians who are really fervent. It's like, no, 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 no. Th- like, this is for everybody. Now, of course, as we serve the Lord, we serve in the strength that he supplies, 1 Peter 4.11. We toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in us, Colossians 1.29. Okay, so we serve empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we serve and we toil. And there should be no such thing as a lazy Christian. There should be no such thing. So this is one of the first and most important ways that we apply all this teaching from Proverbs that we've seen, is to our work in the Lord. As we serve the Lord, his purposes and the roles, we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yeah, some of this is gonna include, uh, uh, in large part, our jobs and the things we do at work, but it's our whole life as we serve the Lord and we put slothfulness to death the israelites worked hard so that they could have full barns at the harvest we work cuz we've got such a much greater harvest promised to us we've got the harvest of the new creation we've got the rewards promised at the seat of jesus and it's no surprise that in 1st corinthians 15 a whole chapter about the resurrection and the new creation ends by saying this therefore so because we're going to be resurrected and enjoy the new creation Therefore, my beloved brothers, okay, another command from an apostle, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So this isn't about putting in your bare minimum. This is about abounding where, you know, people are having to scoop up the work of the Lord as it spills behind you everywhere you go. Abounding. Because we know in the Lord our labor is not in vain. It's going to reach a climax in the new creation. So through this grid, we take all those words from Proverbs and we grab on them. We serve the Lord. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We make disciples. We get involved in our church and our neighbors and and the work that God's doing in the world. And of course, in all this, we don't forget that we need to rest. Of course we need to rest. We don't live under the old covenant, right? Colossians 2, 16, 17, the Sabbath was just a shadow. But... It's still a good idea to rest. Your, your mind and your body need a break. And we need often to take regular rests throughout the year, just like Israel did. And often some longer pauses every few years. These can be really helpful patterns so that we can keep going. Out on the foyer there on the table, I've got a bunch of little pamphlets, like just little kind of helpful things. One is called Crazy Busy. And it's just a a great word to talk about the burnout culture that we live in. How important it is for us to rest when we need to. I also this week ordered a couple books for the library by David Murray and his wife called Refresh and Reset, one for women, one for men, that are really helpful books to help us uh, not get caught up in the burnout culture, the always-on culture that we live in. Rest is important. But we do not work so that we can rest. We rest so that we're going to be able to keep going as we serve the Lord. And until we enter into that great rest of the resurrection and all the adventures that await us on the other side. So I want to end this morning by giving some... Exhortations, and I think I'm allowed to use that word now because we defined it back in the series on Second Timothy. It's a good Bible word, exhortation, strongly urge. I'm going to conclude this morning with some exhortations for us and some specific groups that might be listening this morning, whether you're in this room or whether you're watching or listening to this afterwards. And I'm going to start by urging parents that you teach your kids to work. Your children are not going to magically develop a work ethic someday. It doesn't happen like that. You need to teach them from a young age how to work. So give them chores to do. Help them be involved in the work of the household. But more importantly, train them how to serve the Lord. Get them involved in ministry, whether that's raking the yard for a sick neighbor or washing dishes after your small group meets or tidying up the Sunday school room after, after they've met. Do what the authors of Proverbs did, right? Which is much of, a, much of it is a father talking to his son. Train your kids to see that work is good and honorable. Laziness is foolish and dangerous. Parents, when your children become teenagers, do not buy into the lie that it's normal for them to stay up till three in the morning, scrolling on their cell phones, and then sleeping in until lunchtime, and then generally doing as little as possible the rest of the day. Our culture tells us that's normal. It's not normal. Our culture tells us that being a teenager gives you an excuse to be a sluggard, and that's just insane. The teen years should be years of deliberate preparation for adulthood, and yet many teenagers seem like they're in tryouts for a long-term care home by the level of work that they output. And is it any wonder, is it any wonder why so many 20-somethings struggle with ambition and motivation and purpose in life when they spent the previous seven years acting like they did? So parents, reject the low expectations that our culture gives us for teenagers. Train them to see that work is good, laziness is foolish and destructive at any age, but especially in those crucial years as they're preparing to go make a difference in the world. Parents, your teenagers, you're just training them to, to be unleashed to go make a difference for the Lord. Do that. 20 and 30-somethings. I hope you hear of the, the call of this passage today. Let me just give a a really sharp exhortation to the millennials here. Stop complaining that adulting is hard. Yes, it's hard. It always has been hard. And our parents' and grandparents' generation just got on with it. And they didn't stay up late making up memes about how hard what they just did was. when When all they were doing was just being an adult. hard is not bad. Work is wise and honorable. So go to bed instead of making up those memes or reading them and get up in the morning and read your Bible and go to work. Serve the people of God. Young men, let me talk to you specifically here this morning. God wired you to crave and to want significance. And that's because we're sons of Adam And if you were here for our men's Bible study this last year, you'll know what that means. We were created to make a difference in this world. You were created to want to do something significantly. And the father of Proverbs wanted his sons to find significance in the right way by working hard and making a valuable contribution to society. Instead, so many young men today are getting their feelings of significance from whatever's in front of them on a screen. Whether it's porn or video games, that screen is giving them their feelings of significance, short-circuiting their brain. Slightly better might be personal hobbies or sports, but still, so many of these pursuits ignore anybody else and the fact that God put us in this world to make a difference in the lives of others for his glory. And so, young men, put down the screens, put down the controller, and get in the game. You've got something to give You've got something to learn, and you're not going to experience either of those in front of a screen. Take responsibility for yourself and your church and whatever else God has put in your path. So. Uh, Here's how you can do this. Young men, join us, and actually, all men, join us in September for our monthly Bible studies. As we're going to be digging into more of what it means to be a godly man in the world, in the church, in the Great Commission, I urge you to join us. I so long for the men of this church to be a band of brothers who spur each other on in the great battle that we find ourselves in. Don't waste the opportunities that God gives you to do that. Stand and be counted. And come and be a part of what God's doing in this fellowship. Adults of all ages. Hear the lessons from Proverbs this morning. Don't work so that you can rest. Rest so that you can work. And especially as you get older, please reject the lies from our culture that tell you that as soon as you can afford it, you're allowed to not do anything. Please don't believe that lie. As you get older, you may not be able to do as much as you used to be able to do or as fast as you used to be able to do it. Of course, there's a change in what we can do as we get older. But there is always something to be done as long as we're here in this world. And sadly, many people today are taking what could be the most fruitful decades of their life Where they could be passing on a legacy and training and blessing and equipping others, and they're just wasting it on themselves because they've believed the lie that they deserve it. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. There's no expiry date on that, it's for all of us. All of us this morning rest in the gospel. Find rest for your souls in the work that Jesus did for you. And then hear his call to join him as we make disciples of him. The song by Stephen Delopoulos that I read again this week, listen to, says, There is work to be done. There is work to be done. We're all just dust to glory. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. Bow your head to the mission story. Let's take a moment to do that now. Let's talk to God, and then I'll lead us as we pray. Father, thank you that you're always working. Jesus, thank you that you set us that same example. Thank you that you've given us this instruction on work, and thank you that you call us to be a part of your work. What a a great and a high and a noble privilege. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us. We're all in a different situation with our stage of life with our circumstances, would you help us to know what it looks like to rest appropriately and to work appropriately as we serve you in your purposes? Lord, as we pray your kingdom come, help us to know that we are meant to be a part of the answer to that prayer. And much of that involves our jobs. And much of that involves what we do in our families. And much of that involves what we do in our church and yet it involves our whole lives. Would you help us to get that, Lord? And would you help us to hear the call? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.